HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I am so excited that Dr. Brian Wensink will be joining the show to discuss his work at Cornell University's Food and Brand Lab. Brian is the founder and director of the lab, researching food psychology and consumer behavior. The lab works to discover how people relate to food with the ultimate goal of uncovering solutions to improve our food environment and help individuals make healthier choices. But before we get into his research, Taylor Lenzet is in the studio with me today to go through some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Jenna. What's going on? Uh, So first up, uh, for the first time, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has declared that bees are endangered. Mm -hmm. And as of October 31st, seven species of yellow-faced bees native to Hawaii will join the endangered species list. Um, And scientists and researchers attribute their decline to sort of habitat destruction, um, invasive of non-native plants, and general urbanization. This is uh, pretty amazing. I mean, we hear a lot about declining bee populations, but I think it's a big, big step that they are officially Mm -hmm. moved to the endangered species list. Um, What is this list? I mean, can you tell us what this list actually means? Totally. So for starters, it brings public attention to the major issue um, and allows public officials to access federal funding for programs that aim to protect and sort of revive the species. But as you mentioned, this is a sort of part of a broader issue, which includes that the decline of the U.S. bee population is also affecting farmers across the country. Uh, And bees provide a valuable service to agriculture. I just learned this this week, but it's estimated that the economic value of pollination work is $265 billion annually worldwide. Uh, the irony of modern <laughs> agriculture. Um, so specifically the use of insecticides. You're going to have to help me with this pronunciation. Neonicotinoids. Neonicotin- <laughs> neonicotinoids. Whew, this is a tongue twister. <laughs> yeah. So that 
insecticide has caused this decline and um you know but obviously bees are crucial to our agricultural system right like modern ag is really ruining itself (laughs) um but yeah yeah, i mean pretty much yeah so and the the last thing i'll say about this is that the epa is reviewing all of these insecticides as part of their larger strategy on how to protect sort of the fragile bee population so hopefully more to come on that Mm mm-hmm uh, sort of second up is the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, partially reversed a decision that upheld that Dole's, Dole Foods' claim of all-natural fruit was deceiving to the public. The judges unanimously agreed with the plaintiff that using all-natural um, to describe a product that contains citric acid and absorbic acid is, in fact, misleading. Um, yes. So this reminds me, the last, last week, the FDA... Um, is in the process of kind of sprucing up their definition of healthy. So the FDA is like, you know, got a lot on its plate right now. Yeah. Um, with, with natural, um, I'm, you know, I've been obsessed with labeling for quite some time. <laughs> Are and you? I, yeah, totally, totally <laughs> obsessed. And I, you know, I think that this definition also has been a long time coming, but, um, it is a little bit like c- not contentious, but I think that um, it's just a, it's a really tricky term mm-hmm. to define. Mm-hmm. And um, if you do start to regulate it, I mean, you, there will inevitably probably always be some sort of marketing claim that right. will take its place. So yeah. it's complicated. It is. I think the really cool thing um, that if you want to get involved, the FDA is seeking public input so you can let them know what you think about the definition of healthy specifically. Um, and again, sort of to elaborate on your point, Healthy means a lot of different things to different people, but I think I'm being a little bit more um, optimistic mm-hmm. that uh, if we can regulate sort of how it's used and clean it up, then people can have a better sense of, you know, understanding what the term means and what they're putting into their bodies. Yep, absolutely. Um, okay, just because I've been geeking out on pesticides, we're going to return to talking about pesticides. Let's talk more about it. Um, so for the past um, year or so, the EPA has been reviewing atrazine, and the American Farm Bureau Federation pretty much told the EPA if their atrazine study leads to higher regulation around its use, you're going to hit farmers with some huge bills. They're expecting about $59 per acre to transition to alternative weed control methods. Uh, breaking news, uh, <laughs> chemical-free ag is more expensive. Yeah, really, truly shocking. <laughs> great, great job. <laughs> um, I, You know, this is where I just sort of think, like, where do we want to be in 25 years? Um, atrazine has been linked to some pretty scary impacts on birds, mammals, and fish, and no one has ever said that weeding off of it would be easy, yeah. um, but it never will be, right? Like, right. that's the point. So um, we might as well get... Get yeah, after it. and also in 2003, when the EPA approved its continued use, that same month mm-hmm. in 2003, right? So a long right. time ago, the EU banned atrazine because it's because pretty much it's water contamination overall impact. On uh, another example of how the EU is like light years ahead of us <laughs> with uh, proper regulations around yeah. um, harmful substances. Yeah, yeah. Potentially so, harmful substances. Uh, last up, let's move. Let's talk about it. <laughs> so tomorrow is going to mark Michelle Obama's final harvest of the White House garden. Mm. Um, and so as we know, the garden was one of the first things Michelle did as FLOTUS. And with that event, there has been lots of buzz um, that's sort of been evaluating the impact of 
her Let's Move campaign and her overall impact on food policy. Yeah, and this is something um, I definitely think we're going to be talking about more as the administration wraps up its term. Um, so, you know, stay tuned for, for more on kind of the evaluation on the work that the administration has done. But obviously, um, Michelle has done so much um, in this space, and she's really kind of regardless on where you fall on this, she's made an lasting impact to food policy and worked really hard to bring it into the spotlight. So Yeah, she, um, you know, campaigned and really pushed through the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act in 2010, which cleaned up school lunches. Uh, and so many low-income families rely on school meal services. And before, the focus was really on keeping meals cheap and not nutritious. And she had a pretty big impact in making sure the law included things that got rid of sugary and high caloric foods in vending machines and providing free breakfast programs to schools with uh, high poverty rates without the extra paperwork that was often a burden. Yeah, so clearly a huge win for public health. Um, and there is... Vox, for instance, reported that, uh, according to the USDA, 97% of schools are meeting these standards. Wow. Yeah. I would remind you that these are the, the very same standards that are up for um, reauthorization in the Child Nutrition Reauthorization mm -hmm. Act, which, if you will remember, to um, we've been talking about it for about a year now, uh, it, that legislation has been delayed and for a year. And um, there are still threats that, they, you know, that the specifically Repu largely Republicans would like to kind of roll back some of these standards. Yeah. So um, hopefully we can move CNR along before the end of this administration. Yeah. All right. We're going to leave it there for our new segment today. If you have thoughts on the stories that we covered or suggestions for stuff you want to hear us talk about next week, you can email us. Our email address is eatingmatters at heritageradionetwork.org or tweet at us at eatmattershrn. Music for this break is brought to you by Taxstar, and this track is called Vicodin Dreams. Now for our feature story um, of today, joining us on the line is Dr. Brian Wensink from Cornell University's Food and Brand Lab. Brian is the leading expert in changing eating behavior, both on an individual level and on a mass scale, using principles of behavioral science. His research focuses on how ads, packaging, and personality traits influence both usage frequency and volume of healthy foods. He's also the author of Mindless Eating and Slim by Design, as well as over 200 peer-reviewed reviewed journal articles. Brian's recent article, Don't Eat Too Much, How Parent Comments Relate to Female Weight Satisfaction, was published this past summer, and I'm so pleased it has brought him to our show today. Hi, Brian. 
Hey, it's great to be with you. Great to have you. Um, before we delve into your recent study on body image, I want to first talk a little bit about your background and some of your key discoveries. Um, you've been researching consumer behavior with regard to food for over two, what, two decades now? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I guess 25 years officially uh, last year. Wow. So this is way longer than I would say <laughs> the relatively new attention the general public has kind of given to food. How did you get your start in this field and, and what attracted you to it in the first place? Well, you know, I, I grew up in an uh, agricultural state, and I would sell uh, you know, vegetables like door-to-door in my little wagon when I was you know, eight or nine <laughs> or ten years old. And I was always amazed how I could stop at one house and they'd buy every single thing I had yeah. in my little wagon. And then the next house, which is identical in terms of education, income, everything, yeah. demographics, would look at me like I was peddling kryptonite. <laughs> and I thought, and, and, and it's, it's puzzling as a little boy, and you, you kind of feel like as an eight-year-old, you feel rejected, like I guess you feel rejected when somebody says no to buying your Girl Scout cookies. Mm-hmm. And it, it, always, uh, it always sort of fascinated me, um, because I always liked eating healthy, and so that's, that's what I've been doing the rest, for the rest of my life, is figuring out what are the really small ways that you can change what environment does or mm-hmm. what a person thinks or how something's set up so that it turns people to unknowingly eating a whole lot better and liking it more than when you try to kind of lecture at them about what they should be doing or um, the nutritional facts. So it was your kind of first, uh, so, I mean, this experience sounds like it really goes all the way back. <laughs> so it's saying, yeah, yeah. It goes, it goes, yeah, it goes all the way back. In fact, what's interesting is about 20 years ago, we first came up with the idea of the 100 calorie pack because we were trying to come up with ways to help dieters eat less. Yeah. And, and, and we were kind of saying, well, why don't you do these, put these in smaller packages and things like this, or put them in smaller Ziploc baggies. And we found that, holy cow, as people started reducing the size of things, it, it dramatically influenced how much they ate because they'd say, well, you know, I, I know I've got tons of, M&M's in front of me or Chex Mix or whatever, but I'm not going to eat it all because, you know, I'd have to open another baggie. Yeah. You're like, really? And so it's actually interesting then that it ended up turning into the 100-calorie pack of been about, about 1996. You've, so that was cool. You've saved people a lot of a lot of pounds over the years, I think, yeah. with those yeah, calorie so. packs. Yeah, so. Um, so can you um, tell us, uh, like, uh, you know, some additional kind of small changes. You, you, you write a lot about this, like the things yeah. in your immediate control to make your food environment healthier. So what are, what are some additional kind of things you recommend for people to do that affect our behavior? Well, sure. So the way we end up figuring these things out is I've got the, the food and brand lab at, up at Cornell University. And what it, is, it looks exactly like your home, mm-hmm. except if your home had one-way mirrors in it, yeah. And if, you're, if your home had hidden cameras and if it had scales underneath the tables, and what we do is we, we bring people in there for meals or for snacks or for, you know, whatever we're, we're looking at to see how small changes can kind of tweak and, and alter how much they unknowingly eat. So we did all this stuff with smaller plates that showed people serve and eat 22% less off of small plates. Mm-hmm. They think they're full. We've, we've done a lot of the things related to showing that simply moving the distance of a serving bowl just dramatically influences your likelihood to go back for seconds or for thirds and cut your calories by about 20% during mealtime. But, you know, we've also done some kind of some cool stuff that, um, some other cool stuff where we looked at, for instance, um, how, how much of a snack do you really need to eat 
to be happy? And is there some way you can kind of trick yourself right. into snacking less? And one of the things that we found is that if you end up only eating one-fourth as much of a snack as you think you want, so let's say you usually eat little eight little squares of chocolate, but yeah. you only eat two little squares of chocolate or two kisses or whatever. I would feel chipped. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. That, that, and if you do that every afternoon, um, let's say that, that 15 minutes later we found that people rate themselves as equally happy, huh. equally full, and less guilty if they've eaten the whole thing. But here's the difference. What they have to do is they have to put the rest of that snack away, and they have to do something in the intervening 15 minutes that distracts them from the snack. So, you know, return a phone call or um, clean up or straighten up their office or the room. I mean, anything that is distracting for 15 minutes all of a sudden erases your memory that you only had a fourth as much as you wanted because now all you remember is that you did have something to eat right. and you liked it a lot. But not that you missed out on something. Exactly, because deprivation diets both deprive you physically and psychologically, and they almost never work for about 95% of us. So, so a lot of your work focuses on kind of reducing portion sizes subconsciously? Yeah, or, you know, some ways, tricks you can do to do that, tricks you can do to sort of change what you want to eat and how much you eat of things. And yeah, and that's actually mm-hmm. what initially mindless eating the book Mindless Eating was about. And then what I did is when we launched the Smarter Lunchroom Movement, which is where we showed schools how Mm -hmm. they can make changes in school cafeterias to get kids to eat healthier without having to force them in one way. Simple things like putting putting fruit in a nice fruit bowl in a well-lit part of the line or or giving vegetables cool names. Or putting the chocolate milk behind the white milk. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. We found that simply making a lot of these changes that work for us as individuals in our home can be transferred to different environments, whether it be schools, cafeterias, restaurants, grocery stores, mm-hmm. and uh, can help us eat better. So, so I've now moved to showing how this can work in larger institutions to help us eat healthier and uh be happier. Yeah. That's that's in Slim by Design. That's the book, yeah. That's in Slim Slim by Design. Design. Yeah. It seems like a lot of your research or early research focuses on kind of advising individuals how to make behavioral changes as opposed to the larger changes at the institutional levels. Um, So, but are you, and I guess my question was like, you know, kind of why focus on the individual behavioral patterns as opposed to doing things like working with industry to kind of shift the default, right? So we, so by doing like making big interventions, like um, encouraging, for instance, healthier products to have, you know, giving more valuable real estate to healthier products and grocery stores, like wouldn't these interventions have a much larger impact than relying on the individual? Yeah, it depends on what can be done quickest, easily, and most effectively. So uh-huh. with the idea of the 100-calorie pack, yeah. that was something that I could convince when I first discovered that back in 1995. I took that in the road and showed Nabisco and m Mars and Kellogg's, look, you can reduce your portion sizes and people eat less, they'll be happier, you'll be richer. And, and that took them less than two years to put that into play because they knew they could make a profit. Right. Now, in other cases, it's a whole lot easier to just target consumers to give them rules of thumb or give them sort of tools that they can use than it is to try to convince um, Hershey's to come out with a one-quarter size candy bar. It's a whole lot easier to convince 
consumers that if they eat a quarter as much but distract themselves, they'll be equally happy and healthy and less guilty. Yeah. So, so it depends on where the easiest win is. Right, right. I mean, and ultimately, I'd probably assume that a both-and approach is the, the most effective while you're working to with industry to, to kind of shift the default um, to what they had originally established. You can encourage yeah. people to do these do these things. Um, and you're also very supportive of policies that encourage certain behaviors, behaviors from like a positive perspective. So I'm thinking of subsidies to incentivize purchase of fruits and vegetables versus um, those kinds of uh, policies that aim to reduce or, or maybe create barriers like a syntax um, would. H have you done any research um, on like the long-term benefits of incentive, in uh, incentive interventions? Well, you know, we, we've done we've done it for about six months. So I don't know if that's long term or not. But you know, we've we've done it for about six months. So it depends whether you consider that long term or not. Right. You know, and, and one of the things we find is that um, we took over an entire town of Utica, New York, uh -huh. uh, and what we did is we um, we, we we did that. We we had a, a ten percent surcharge or ten percent sort of you know bonus based on whether people bought healthy or less healthy foods. And uh, one of the things we found is that you know, if, if you if you tax something, people did, they did buy less of the less um, healthy stuff, but they also bought less of the healthy stuff. It's like, why well, if you're taking my money away, I'm not gonna I'm gonna spend it less on everything. Right. But, but we also found uh, that you know if you subsidized vegetables or you know subsidized the healthier stuff, what happened is people did buy more of it, but they also bought more of the less healthy stuff. They just bought more of everything. You know, you need more money. So yeah. I'm I'm less sanguine about about either of those two policies than I am simply encouraging and working with grocery stores to help them make their stores slim by design, to set up a store so that the first thing people see within 10 feet yeah. of coming in the front door is fruit. Because we find that if there's fruit within 10 feet of the front door, not within 30 feet, within 10 feet of the front door, mm -hmm. people, people end up buying about 4% more fruit. Right. I mean, you know, four policies of, of saying, hey, grocery store, you know, why don't you have at least one cash register checkout that, that doesn't have candy or food? Yeah. And, and, and do it because not just because it makes people healthier, but do it because you're going to make a lot more money doing that. How how will they make more money? I think I I, I also think a lot of the like, candy companies, for instance, sure. really rely on that like point of purchase sale for a lot of their profits. Yeah, well, I mean, no no grocery store should probably eliminate all food or all candy at, at a cash register. That's that's asking asking them to run before they walk. Yeah. Um, but you know, to do it for a couple of cash registers would work pretty well, and they do make more money. We did a really cool study. I had an entire island. In, in Denmark, the island of Bornholm, where they let me do a bunch of changes to all the grocery stores in that island of 42,000. Yeah. We found that um, we found that if a, if a grocery store had just one um, checkout that was that was food free, they actually made more money because what happens? You're not going to leave it empty. You're going right. to put in batteries or you're going to put in yeah. so, glass repair kits or you're going to put in light bulbs or something. Yeah. And all and all those make you more money, more margin than a Snickers bar does. For, for the retailer, not necessarily for Mars <laughs> or whatever candy company. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Well, you know, I, think, I think, you know, that's right. You know, you can say, well, Mars does pretty well and it it's probably does good enough and it can come up with some new ideas. It can, it can innovate. They, they did great innovation with a 100-calorie pack mm -hmm. when I presented it to them. They, they bid on 
it right away. So yeah, yeah, they're an early adopter of that. Yeah, they 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 do. uh, Mars does some great stuff. That's for sure. Um, Okay, so I uh, can ask you. I've got about a thousand other questions for you, but um, I really want to be able to give some. Um, attention to your recent article. So I, we might just have to have you back on the show. But for <laughs> for now, we're going to take a quick break. Sure. And then when we um, come back, we're going to talk about uh, your research on body image and specifically how the comments you make um, to your daughters about their weight can impact both their weight and body satisfaction into adulthood. So stay tuned. There are over 50,000 Chinese-American restaurants in the U.S. That's more than three times the number of McDonald's. How did Chinese-American food become so popular? And what's the story behind their unique menu of dishes like egg rolls and General's chicken? Brooklyn's Museum of Food and Drink is going to explain it all with our next exhibition, Chow, the Making of Chinese-American Cuisine, featuring tastings, beautiful artifacts, and live demos of a fortune cookie machine. Visit chow.mofad.org to learn more, get advanced tickets, and help us make this exhibition a reality. Again, that's the Museum of Food and Drink at chow.mofad.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Dr. Brian Wensink, founder and director of Cornell University's Food and Brand Lab. Um, Brian, can you give us an overview of what you sought to uh, explain with this, this body image study and some of the main findings that resulted from it? Yeah, one thing that's been a, a key concern of mine in, in recent years ends up being uh, why it is that some women grow into being young women, some girls grow to be young women, with, these, with a tremendous concern about body image, in some cases very dysfunctional. In some cases it just makes them unhappy or discontent. But in other cases it's, it's really debilitating in some ways. Right. And so in looking, we started looking at a lot of people who had, in their 20s and 30s, who, who had grown up with eating disorders, to try to figure out what had happened when they were younger that, that could be kind of, in some ways, if not rectified, at least addressed to somebody, a parents, who had little girls to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, and, what, and one of the things we did is we, we ended up, it led us to looking at all women in general, because there wasn't, there wasn't huge difference between people who had the eating disorders, uh, who had um, some, some issues with food, right. and a, a larger population. And so Which one is of the interesting. We, we did in That's looking back right and looking there. back, some of the things that had happened to them is we, we found that a lot of them had memories mm-hmm. of, of their parents talking about or mentioning their, their weight numerous times when they were little. And um, it, it, what we ended up finding is that if a person, you know, at age 35, when asked, you know, how frequently did your parents comment about your weight when you were a little girl? Mm-hmm. If, if they commented that they heard, they remember it at all, it, even if they were a normal weight now at age 35, they were much less satisfied with their weight, they were constantly monitoring their weight. They um, said they had to lose, on average, it was, I think, about um, about six or seven pounds more than to be happy with their weight right. compared, to, compared to the same person with the same weight whose parents didn't say anything. And uh, it was a very powerful study, I think, to look at how a parent might 
think about raising a daughter nowadays and really how seemingly small things that are said can really have this lasting impact that we don't want to have. I I mean, yeah, I... I loved uh, this study, um, and it's something that resonates with me personally, um, and it's just, I think, fascinating, especially for, for parents. But one of, one of the questions I uh, wanted to ask is, why did you choose to only study women? Like, don't, don't men have body image issues as well? Yeah, it was, it's a whole lot less common. But I guess it, you know, the one reason is it's a lot less common with guys. But secondly, um, I have three girls and I have three boys. So yeah. <laughs> so this was personal for you too, also. Well, yeah, because basically all the research we do here in the Cornell Food and Brand Lab is all focused on solving a problem. It all has at the end of the project, at the mm-hmm. end of the paper, there is a solution that can be implemented, and. The solution that I was looking for here is like, oh my gosh, you know, we all, anybody who's got a child gets frustrated about the way they eat, but what can you say about that person or to that person that's not going to maybe scar them or at least hurt them in some way that you don't want to hurt them. Yeah. And since I couldn't find the answer anywhere, I said, well, I know how to solve this. <laughs> <laughs> I will find the answer. That's amazing, the benefits of having um, uh, somebody in your line of work as a, as a parent. So, um, and we're going to, uh, before we wrap up, we're definitely going to talk about advice you would give to parents. But um, first, I, I, you know, I kind of, I wanted to ask, like the, the, this analysis um, indicated that uh, parents' comments on on weight um, were significant as children were significant predictors of adult BMI and and more specifically, like uh, the more parents commented on their daughter's weight and eating too much, the higher the BMI. But I'm wondering if this could be explained by the fact that like maybe these women were already overweight at a young age, which thus caused the parents to make these uh, comments. Yeah, well, absolutely with some of the girls. And that's why when I mentioned earlier, the really powerful takeaway about this is what happens when you take the woman who is normal weight right now at age 35 or at age 30. They've never been overweight their life, but they're standing right next to their counterpart with the same weight whose parents never mentioned anything about their weight. And they still found. Yeah, and we find find that typical person, even though they're underweight or even though they're normal weight, on average wants to lose seven pounds more before they're happy than the woman standing right next to them. Right. And the study um, says that on that, that the, the mean or the average weight a woman wants to lose is around 20 pounds, which I was, I was like shocked mm-hmm. initially. Is this because did, did you aggregate the weight of, of normal? Yeah. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah, that's in, in both groups. Yeah, that's right. So the average person in general, that's how much they want to lose. Exactly. Okay. So not necessarily, but but then still the statistic of uh, a nor- someone who's a, of a normal weight still wanted to lose eight pounds more than. Yeah, yeah. So, so that would that would shift up to about twenty four pounds for the people whose parents complained, and about sixteen and a half for those parents who didn't complain. I mean, yeah. that's still a lot of weight. Um, yeah, either way you slice it. But okay, all right. So that was that was surprising. Is there anything yeah. else that um, that surprised you about this this study yeah. in general? Yeah, a couple of things that are interesting. First is that you know we ask people to what extent do you remember your parents complaining about weight, and how frequently do you remember them them complaining? But it, was, it wasn't uh, if a child, a girl, remembered their parents complaining anything about their weight, 
it had as bad of an impact as if they said they never complained, uh, as if they said they complained all the time. So it seems that, you know, doing it a little bit, you, you might think it's not going to hurt, but it seems to um, have the same effect as complaining all the time. Did you look so, at, the, at what kind of uh, comments parents made? Yeah, we looked at both positive and, and, and negative comments, but most, most, what, what most people remember are just the negative comments. Nobody remembers anything really positive that their, their parents say. What really seems to stick with, with, um, with girls as they, as they grew up end up being just the negative comments. But what we did also find, which is interesting, is that one solution to this is, well, first of all, don't, don't complain about the weight. Mm-hmm. But the second one would be you can comment about the food and that and about their eating behavior without commenting about them as a person. You can say, you know, you should really eat more vegetables or, you know, um, you know, don't eat that ice cream, but you just can't mention anything about weight. You can't associate it with their, their body type. Yeah, and, and, and better yet, I mean, the thing that we find has been working better, we have a, we have a parent panel here at Cornell that, I, that I've written about in some of my design and stuff, and one of the things we find with our parent panel is that it's even easier to simply just set up that environment so kids eat healthier without thinking about it. So, you know, you serve your salad and vegetables first on the table and not simultaneously with the pasta and chicken. Okay. Right. You give them, yeah, when they come home from school, you give them a little snack if it's an indulgent snack. You give them a bigger snack if it's a healthy snack, um, but you don't give them the big and indulgent snack because that's going to spoil their supper. And a lot of these things are very easy ways to guide kids eating healthier without having to complain about their weight, without having to say, Audrey, don't eat that or you're going to be fat. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, uh, it's, it, it, it is very, very interesting to me. I, did you look at all um, in this study about whether parental comments about weight led to women specifically developing or struggling with eating disorders? I know that you, that was sort of the initial kind of impetus for the research, but I don't know if you had made that connection in this actual study. Yeah, that that was the initial inspiration was uh, somebody in my lab who had a serious eating disorder and I had to take her to the, the hospital and, and oh eventually to a inpatient clinic. Um, but we didn't, the, the, the thing is that not very many people will identify themselves as having a, a problem like that in sufficient number to look at in a statistically legitimate way. You know, <clears throat> that's that's very interesting and surprising to me. Just by the, I I happen to know a lot of women who really struggled with uh, eating disorders by my own uh, at some point in their life by my own totally unofficial anecdotal, yeah. uh, you know, study or you know of the people around me. So I'm surprised that there you would have a um, challenge kind of finding. Um, a large oh, enough sample size. Of them. In fact, <laughs> I, about a third of the people in my lab have had eating disorders. Right. But the only reason I know that is they tell each other, but they seldom tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. I got it. Um, um, yes. Okay. So, all right. So, I. So, very interesting. Any other kind of advice? That you would sorry about that. That you would have for um, parents of young daughters, yeah. Because um, yeah, I feel like we probably sufficient sufficiently terrified all parents with daughters listening. 
today. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Funny. yeah that's right. Well, I, I think I did three things. Okay, the, the first thing is try to never mention their weight, even if you do it positively. Just try, try to never mention their weight. They're right. just a beautiful, wonderful little girl we're blessed to yeah. have. Uh, second, if you're going to mention anything about eating, make it be about the food but not about the person. Okay? okay. And then the third thing would be Set up that your environment, okay, mm-hmm. to make it swim by design. Set it up so that kids will naturally, when they sit down and they're hungry, there's naturally the the the, the food that's served first is the healthiest and the most filling. You know, have their plate be small, have the serving bowl, it's the serving bowl they serve out of be small, mm-hmm. and simply setting those things up actually sort of can mindlessly lead kids to develop these ha- better habits and become calibrated in the way we want them to without us having to lecture that, you know, if they, if they eat that, they're going to get fat. Um, what about, like, emphasizing the health, um, you know, if you eat this to be healthy? Yeah, you know, we, like we've, talking we've about healthy. tons yeah. of, yeah, we, like I said, the Smarter Lunchroom approach that we've come up with is in 29,000 schools. So we, we do stuff all, all the time. And, and we find that healthy is not a motivation for Almost anybody yeah. <laughs> uh, at that, that age, um, you know, so that you can be energetic or that you can be beautiful, you can have nice skin, that, that's more motivating. But, you know, we did this really cool study, which um, it was how to get young women to adopt tofu into their diet. Uh-huh. And we found the biggest way to motivate a young woman, if we look at the people who do eat tofu in their 20s and 30s, very few of them do it for healthy, uh, a reason of health. They might mention it, but even that's like the fourth or fifth thing they mention. What most of them do it for is, is because of beauty or because of convenience. Huh. And those end up being a lot more motivating, I think, to some people right. than we might give it credit for. So, so the, the upshot is, you know, when talking to your kids, talking about foods in a way like you should eat this because it's healthy is not necessarily effective. Yeah, you know, it, it makes you pretty. It gives you a nice glow. It gives you good energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, those are things that they. That's, that's, those are things that little some little girls want. But in they general, want to be energetic and happy and glowy. Yeah, glowy. I love it. <laughs> but but in general, just kind of setting your kitchen up, you know, in a way that is um, conducive to healthy eating without shoving it down their throats is going to be much more impactful. It sounds. Yeah, like. that's right. That's right. That's right. But you can frame things the right way, and I, you know, I, I don't know about. Girls older than older than eleven because mine are just six, eight, and eleven. But among those <laughs> ages, it works really well. All right. Well, this has been such a pleasure to have you on. I can't believe we managed to cover so much in in such a short period of time. But certainly, <laughs> I can think of a hundred other opportunities to have you back on the show. I've really loved your research for a long time. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, well absolutely. Fortunately, we both talk really fast. <laughs> I know, I know. We're so efficient. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, have a, have a great Canadian Thanksgiving because I, I hear that's coming up this weekend. Thank you. I will. I am half Canadian, <laughs> so I will actually do that. <laughs> okay. okay. Thanks, Brian. Good. Okay, thank you very much. Talk to you later. Um, okay, so for more information on, on Dr. Wensing's research, be sure to check it out at foodpsychology.cornell.edu. All right. It's now time for our final segment on today's episode 
where we feature an innovative and exciting new food company. Today, I'm very pleased to introduce Megan Morkey, co-founder and CEO of Bite Foods, a healthy vending machine company operating in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Megan. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being for joining us. Um, so tell us about Bite Foods and how it works. Absolutely. So Bite uses technology to deliver the most efficient, affordable, fresh food solution for workplaces, hospitals, schools, gyms, really any location that can benefit from extending the retail experience of, say, a Whole Foods into smaller locations like the workplace. All right. Um, and, and what is the main issue that your company seeks to address? Um, so is this just like a, a, a general desire to kind of improve the food environment for everybody? Well, there's, there's a, when you look at the market, there's this general disconnect between what consumers are doing today. Nielsen reports that 64% of Americans are now trying to make healthier eating choices. They're looking for higher levels of convenience, yet when these same individuals go into work every day, 99% of workplaces don't have any fresh food on site. And the reason being is it's really expensive to do. You either right. have to be a company that is of the size to warrant having a cafeteria, or you have to have ample budget to cater for your employees on an ongoing basis. So there's this gap in the market where Byte Solution is a perfect fit. A company can pay a very low subscription, $500 per month, mm -hmm. and have in front of their employees this turnkey fresh food solution where an employee can literally walk 20 feet away and purchase a high-quality fresh salad from a brand that they already know and love. And so what can you kind of describe what these um, fridges look like for everybody? I'm assuming they are refrigerated. Yes, absolutely. So it looks like, you know, a standard glass front fridge. Um, pretty nondescript when you just look at it. It's a fridge full of food. Mm -hmm. the, the difference is that um, it's locked, and you'll see a, you know, a tablet screen on the front that allows you to see the menu of every item in that fridge, the pricing. And then from a consumer perspective, with the swipe of a credit card, the fridge unlocks. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it really is like a normal retail experience where you've got open shelving. You can pick a salad up, look at the ingredients, put it back, grab a blue bottle coffee and a yogurt parfait. And then once you close the door, that's really where the magic happens. So at that point, we're using technology to automatically know precisely what was purchased from the fridge. And we charge that consumer automatically. So there's no honor system. There's no self-checkout. Mm -hmm. And it's this technology that gives us unprecedented access to real-time data, like transaction data, uh, the inventory of every item across our fleet of fridges and market, down to the level of knowing how long a single item sat on a shelf. Wow. That's an absolutely incredible. Um, can you walk me through the process of, like, of how you get the food from the producers to the fridges, and, and where do you get your products from? Um, you, you mentioned brands that we all know, so you, got, you don't make any of the products yourself, do you? Correct, correct. So we have a forager who mm -hmm. goes out and forges relationships with an, a wide range of uh, food makers, everyone from you know, the local artisan that you'd find at your farmer's market mm -hmm. to brands that are familiar and you'd see walking, um, you know, walking the aisle of the grocery store to partnering with a co-packer or a manufacturer to make more custom items for Bite. And then, of course, we'll also work with a 
with distributors, um, a distributor like UNFI. And and in terms of like the product selection, you mentioned salads and coffees. Um, is it just kind of typical lunch fare, or like what does the general product mix tend to look like for breakfast, lunch, dinner? Yeah, you know, it changes every single week and even multiple times a week. But um, at a very high level, it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, drinks for those times in between. Um, It could be anything from, you know, an Indian entree that you're going to heat up to uh, a breakfast sandwich from the local bakery with cage-free eggs and, and, and pastured ham. Um, so it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty broad selection. Um, no two fridges has the same set of products in it just because we serve a very wide demographic. We have, um, you know, a largely blue-collar hourly workforce at the Chevron refinery purchasing mm-hmm. from our fridges, but then we'll also serve, you know, a, a technology company or a law firm or consultants in the heart of San Francisco. And so you allow your um, customers to, your customers being the businesses that you are supplying to make their own selections, like you give them a menu, basically, of what they can order each week? No, we use the data. We let huh? the customers and their purchase data actually inform what kind of mix they want to see, you know, whether that is driven by um, dietary preferences, price point preferences, brand preferences. Wow. That data is what feeds into our algorithm to know what to deliver to a given location. Wow. That's that's incredible. Um, what, it sounds very high tech, um, um, what are your, what have your biggest challenges been, or maybe your one big, your biggest challenge since you first launched the company, given how kind of I mean, it sounds complex on the back end, certainly not con- for the consumers. And and how did you work to overcome this challenge? Yeah, absolutely. So Byte had an interesting start as a company. We're just, we're pretty young. We're, we're a little over a year old. Um, we started by licensing this technology mm-hmm. um, and from a company called Pantry, which has been in market for a few years now. And over the course of six months, we grew to become their largest customer. And we were um, fortunate enough to close on an acquisition of Pantry in May. And, Congratulations. Um, really, that has, that has presented tremendous opportunities because we not only have the great mindshare of the Pantry guys now within the Byte team, but we now have full control over that technology, both on the hardware and the software side of things. Um, so what, what, was there a challenge with the merger, though, would you say, as a, as a younger company, or was it just did it just seem kind of seamless given your previous work? Um, say that one more time. I want to make sure I got your question. Oh, yeah. No, was, was it a challenge um, merging the two companies um, in, oh, you know, right. in that process? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah great question. Um, you know, the, we, I think we had the benefit of having worked with the pantry team for so long yeah. that there was that innate trust between the teams, and then the fact that the acquisition really brought together a team um, where there wasn't much overlap in mm-hmm. roles. It really has allowed us to flourish since since the acquisition. Okay, so now the most important question I'm going to ask: <laughs> You're in San, you're in the Bay Area now. When um, can all of our listeners who are spread out through the country expect to see <laughs> a fabulous bite fridge near them? Soon, soon. Um, <laughs> you know, Byte, Byte does plan to expand soon, but um, yeah, check us out on our website and give us a holler if you're eager to see, see, see us in your neck of the woods. All right. Awesome. We're going to wrap it up for today, but um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Megan. 
Thank you, John. All right. And for more information on the company, go to bite.co, and that's B-Y-T-E. Oh, sorry, bitefoods.co, B-Y-T-E foods. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. That's going to wrap up our episode for today. I want to thank both of our guests, Dr. Brian Wensink for, from Cornell University's Food and Brand Lab and Megan Morkey from Bite Foods for coming on the show. And a big thanks to our sponsors, as always, for your generous support. Um, our show is produced uh, with help from the one and only Taylor Lenzet, and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you, Pierre Bienami, who is our sound engineer extraordinaire. Um, all episodes of Eating Matters are available on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast um, or iTunes, uh, or podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Um, like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.